It is very confusing. I will say that on a daily basis, I have patients come into me and saying, I'm so confused by all the information on the internet. I have no idea what to eat. I just kind of throw up my hands and give up because I don't know what to do. So I feel for everyone, it's confusing and it's a stressor. That's a big aspect we can talk about later is that stress component behind eating. But going back to the black and white aspect, I do think certain foods can innately be inflammatory. And I think for certain disease states and certain symptoms, some some foods may need to be out. Some foods may need to be out forever. But in general, I don't like the black or white thinking. I'm Dr. Seth Osgood, the founder of Grassroots Functional Medicine. After personally struggling for years upon years with chronic health issues that traditional medicine and pharmaceuticals could not resolve, I finally found relief in true healing through a functional medicine approach. Since then, I've dedicated my life to helping patients around the world transform their health by getting to the root cause of symptoms and restoring their body's natural ability to heal. This experience has shown me that a true state of wellness often requires an integrated approach that brings in multiple disciplines and modalities. In this podcast, I will interview a variety of practitioners and health professionals to educate and empower you on the full spectrum of tools that are available to reclaim your health and vitality. If you are struggling with health challenges and you are not getting the answers or results you feel you deserve, or you simply want to optimize your health and take a proactive approach to wellness, this podcast is for you. And if you like this show and find it helpful, be sure to tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcast. So let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. I'm really excited about today's guest and today's topic. I'm joined by my close friend and colleague, Taylor Morgan, and we're going to talk all about nutrition. There is so much information out there on the web and from different quote-unquote experts about what the perfect diet is, and we're going to dive into that. We're also going to talk about some individual foods like gluten and dairy uh, and sugar and why these things may be problematic and how some of them can be beneficial basic concepts, but we're making them more complex to help you understand uh, why these things are so important to address to achieve optimal health. So Taylor is a certified physician's assistant who also has her bachelor's degree in nutritional science. She discovered her passion for functional medicine at the beginning of her dietetics career after using a functional approach to overcome hormonal imbalances, digestive complications, and thyroid issues. Taylor describes herself as a lifelong learner and is dedicated to staying up to date with the latest evidence-based research in order to provide the best possible care for her patients. She has completed coursework through the University of Arizona Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. She is an integrative and functional nutrition certified practitioner and is currently undergoing certification to become an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner. She has trained and worked with multiple functional medicine experts throughout her career including New York Times bestseller, Dr. Myers, which is where I met Taylor. We worked together for several years and has helped people from across the country and throughout the world overcome chronic complex health conditions using a functional medicine approach. In her free time, Taylor enjoys spending time with loved ones, being involved in her local church and community, reading, traveling, and spending time 
outdoors in God's beautiful creation. This is a great episode that really brings together many concepts around nutrition. So I would highly encourage you not only to listen to the entire episode, but share it with friends so we can help make our community a healthier place. Food is medicine, and that's what this podcast reiterates more than anything. So let's dive in and get started. Hi, Taylor. Thank you so much for joining me on the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. I really appreciate you being here, and I'm just excited about today's talk. I'm so excited, and I just so appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so for many of you, you guys don't know, but me and Taylor go way back. We worked together uh, back with uh, Amy Myers many years ago, and uh, she is just a wealth of knowledge. And uh, she is an expert at many things, but uh, nutrition is it has been her forte for many years. And that's what we're going to talk all about today. So I'm just super pumped and ready to dive in. But before we do, Taylor, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you're so passionate about nutrition? Oh, absolutely. So I'll try to make a long story somewhat short, but basically, you know, I grew up in a household. My dad was a physician. My mom was a, she did taught exercise classes. And so I grew up around eating healthy and being active. So that was just kind of life growing up. But it wasn't until college, I actually took as an elective a food science course at the University of Georgia. And I just loved learning about food, how it's metabolized by the body, you know, how what what our body needs, how food affects our brain and our gut and everything like that. At the same time, I personally was actually going through some health struggles. I had some digestive issues, you know, really bad bloating and kind of IBS type symptoms. And and was trying just to basically kind of heal myself through diet and food and nutrition. And that's how I ended up finding functional medicine in a sense was trying to piece together, you know, my own health issues. And then also just loving learning about how food was affecting my body and my brain and and everything like that. So I decided to go to dietetic school right off the bat, I was pre med and changed to dietetic, I actually found kind of functional medicine through Dr. Andrew Weil initially. And so right after I graduated dietetic school, I went to his food and nutrition conference. And there we were learning about how food as we're learning food is medicine. So we are learning how you can take or put curcumin on your food to decrease inflammation and use cinnamon to decrease blood glucose. So I was sold from then on out because and and as a provider, I'm, I'm not anti-medication. I do prescribe medication, but there's a blend. And when I can change people's diet and do things naturally and prevent medication or get people off of medication, I'm all for that. So a um, little bit kind of background was that it was, it was through my own health struggles and then just really finding and seeing food as medicine and then seeing that through you know, working with patients as a dietitian and now as a PA and seeing how integral the nutrition aspect is in their health. Awesome. What a great story. And it's just always neat to hear people's background. And a lot of times there's that that connection with personal struggle. And I think that's what really makes people so passionate about this, because as you found with your health, and as we see every day, you know, food really is medicine. And that's what I'm hoping people grab out of today's conversation is just how healing food can be and some of the starting points they may consider, you know, if they're just not familiar with nutrition as an approach to healing because it's confusing. There's information out there. Uh, You know, everybody's got the perfect diet. Everybody's got the foods that, you know, hundred percent of people need to avoid. They're just trying to make a very complex subject, black and white. And it, it just never seems to 
to be that way. So do you mind talking a little bit about that? You know, is there a perfect diet? Is food or nutrition black and white? Does everybody benefit from the same thing? How do you look at nutrition or how should our our listeners look at nutrition? Absolutely. So it is very confusing. I will say that on a daily basis, I have patients come into me and saying, I'm so confused by all the information on the internet. I have no idea what to eat. I just kind of throw up my hands and give up because I don't know what to do. So I feel for everyone it's confusing and it's a stressor. That's a big aspect we can talk about later is that stress component behind eating. But going back to the black and white aspect, I do think certain foods can innately be inflammatory. And I think for certain disease states and certain symptoms, some foods may need to be out. Some foods may need to be out forever. But in general, I don't like the black or white thinking. You know, it's about ends up being personalized because we are all genetically and biochemically different. And so what works for me not what might not work for you, et cetera, as far as what I'm eating, timing of my eating, how I'm eating, et cetera. So it's individualized and it's personalized. When I see a patient, of course, and you too, you assess a full health history from birth until now. We look at labs, we look at the gut, we see if there's any potentially food sensitivities, might take them on elimination diet, see what they're reacting to, take in the whole picture. But I always ask people, it's not necessarily black or white, but what's optimal for your body and what's optimal for your body right now might not be what's optimal for your body long term or in a different season. So it's very individualized. So I don't like the black or white mentality. Kind of getting into that stress aspect just a little bit is we know that stress greatly impacts our bodies, mental, physical, etc. And I will say this, and I say this to every patient, I know diet is stressful. And that's a thing. And we have to be real about that. I could put someone on this great protocol, but if it is completely contributing to their stress levels, and they're stressed out of their max, like, Are we doing more harm than good? So it's about that balance of how do we meet people where they're at? How can we make little, good, reasonable, sustainable changes? And then how can we keep managing our stress and and keep doing really good stress coping, you know, mechanisms? So it's, it's individualized. So I don't like the black or white. We'll talk about maybe some foods later that we maybe are caveats to that for some people, but in general, it's personalized. That's a great point because we've all seen that, you know, people are struggling, trying, doing everything in their power to do the right thing and be healthy, yet they're stressing themselves so yeah. out so much over the diet that it's making them sick. So yeah. that's where, again, I think people need to get help. It's hard to do this on your own. And there's so many great resources and great practitioners out there to help you make the right decisions and make them realistic as well. Meet you where you're at. Absolutely. Well, you know, as we move closer to discussing these specific foods, you know, what I'd like to do is start talking about a common enemy for many of us, which is sugar. So I, I read one of the statistics I just read is that the average American consumes almost 152 pounds of sugar in one year, which equals three pounds or six cups of sugar in a week. So can you tell us a little bit about sugar and why it's problematic and where this huge amount is coming from? Because I think the reality is a lot of people just don't know. Yeah, it's sugar's a big one. 
a huge one. I think the statistics are that now in the United States, one in 10 people have diabetes and one in three have pre-diabetes or insulin resistance. One in three people. Crazy. I mean, what? And, and the hard thing is, you know, obviously there's your sugary laden foods that are you, that you are outwardly knowingly eating. So like your Cokes and your candies and your ice cream, that kind of thing. But sugar is also hidden and it's everywhere. You know, with diabetes and, and blood sugar dysregulation, the thing about it, it's kind of one of those silent killer diseases in a sense where we don't really feel any issues when our blood sugar is high, but over time it can damage our eyes. It can damage our kidneys. It can cause neuropathy. It can cause poor wound healing, cardiovascular disease. So, I mean, it is huge that we get blood sugar down, hormonal imbalance. I mean, brain health, everything like that. Alzheimer's dementia. So beyond your typical like sugary foods that are kind of a no brainer, the thing that makes me so mad is the hidden foods. So even foods that people think they can be making healthy choices. So like salad dressing, granola bars, snack foods. I actually had a patient this last week that was drinking like an, an electrolyte packet drink. She was like, I'm so glad I'm drinking this because it's hot outside and I'm sweating. And, and, and she was thinking she was doing a really good thing and it had 15 grams of sugar in it. So oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it is hidden. And also to go to that point, those naked juices, juices, yeah. huge. One of those naked juices, I think has 50 to 60 grams of sugar in it, the bigger one. Right. So it makes me upset because I'll have people coming in on a daily basis that are like, I'm eating this huge salad for lunch. Okay. What are you putting on it? And they're putting this dressing that has tons of sugar. And so it's hidden and we just have to be really aware. The other aspect of it is that obviously it's added to foods, but also what changes to sugar in the body. So fruits, starches, even starchy vegetables, those aren't bad foods. Okay. But we want to think about overall what we're consuming on a daily basis. And we can overdo those too. You know, we know that our liver has a capacity for fructose, which is just fruit sugar, also found in high fructose corn syrup, which you know, we want to get out of the diet, but we just don't want to be overdoing the fruit, overdoing the carbohydrates. And definitely I just like added sugar out. Absolutely. That's a great advice. I remember, I still remember my rotation with a doctor back in the day and it, he was specialized in diabetes and he would tell his patients that four grams of carbs in breads and pastas. And when you're reading the back of a label is equal to one teaspoon of sugar. So yeah. you, you think about that, you think about, you know, what you're saying, what juice, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. in on the juice kick these days because it's mm -hmm. supposed to be quote unquote healthy. And then it's got more sugar in it than a Coke. You know, it, it right. just, it's mind blowing. And so many people don't know that. And then you mentioned it's being added to things. So why the heck is the food industry adding sugar to all of this food that's supposed to be healthy? You know, so I was, I was thinking about this and kind of looking it up and I think it's, it's touted or they say it's for as a preservative and for texture and flavoring, but sugar is addicting. I mean, that has been shown in the litter. So sugar, when we eat sugar, it increases a neurotransmitter called dopamine, which is part of the reward pathway in our body. When dopamine is increased, we experience kind of a pleasurable high in a sense. And what happens is that we experience this high in our body once more and more and more. But the hard thing is the same amount of consumption won't give us that high, we have to consume more and more. And so this is the basis of addiction. So with drug addiction, with alcohol addiction, but sugar is addictive in just the same way. So I really think that's why we have food addictions, we have binge eating disorder, it, it's that vicious cycle of kind of rewiring our neuro pathways to want and crave. There's 
studies showing that sugar is more addictive than cocaine. I mean, crazy. So, and there was one too, and I, I was looking at this. It was on rats from Connecticut College, and it showed that Oreo cookies activate more neurons in the pleasure center of the rat's brain than cocaine does. Same thing. Wow. And it said, just like humans, they eat the filling first. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's hilarious. So anyway, you know, that's the aspect of it. And from a food industry standpoint, think about it. It's addicting. You're going to buy more. Yeah. They're about sales. So good marketing. There you go. yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it's hard because it really is addicting and it's hard for people to break. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we, you know, a lot of us, everybody struggles with sugar and, and the craving. What are some tips if people are trying to really cut down on sugar and they, they have those intense cravings, which can be very difficult to deal with. What are some tips that you tell your patients to help them, you know, overcome these cravings or to deal with them? Uh, so they're not binging. Absolutely. So first and foremost, just realizing that our taste buds do regenerate. So if people have gone sugar free, for even I think it's just a couple weeks, they do change. So you'll notice if you bring sugar back in, you need less. Same with artificial sweetener. So that being said, in perspective, it is difficult. But over time, your taste buds will change, you'll crave different things, big things as far as initially breaking the sugar habit, eating whole real foods, getting rid of processed foods, junk foods, eating whole real foods, tons of fiber, tons of non-starchy vegetables, balancing your blood sugar. So we know if we're having highs and lows in our blood sugar, we're going to cause some insulin dysregulation, some kind of adrenal stress, cortisol stress. So balancing that out. And that one's really simple, but I think people forget about it. It's really just having at each meal and snack, you know, having some kind of protein and some kind of fat and ideally fiber too. So those are going to keep us satiated and fuller longer. So we're not setting ourselves up. I see and I've even personally done this where you're trying to break a sugar habit and you're just saying no, no, no to all these foods and you go hungry and then you, you break it and then you overdo it and like eat the whole ice cream or whatever it is. So eating consistently, balancing blood sugar, having fiber, hydration, hydration, mindful and intuitive eating. So whenever you're having a craving, really asking yourself, what is this crazy craving coming from? Am I upset about something? Am I bored? Am I stressed? Am I actually hungry? And I need to make a good, healthy choice. I'm a big fan of out of sight, out of mind. So in my apartment, I don't keep cupcakes and cookies in the house. I will have them and I will make them and I'll share them with friends or I'll take them to an event, but I just don't set myself up for failure. So that's a big one. And then the thing that I can't reiterate enough is just the foundational principle, lifestyle interventions, exercise, sleeping, stress reduction. So we all know that when we're sleep deprived and we're stressed, we reach for the sugar. You know, we're tired. So we're wanting it for energy. We're stressed. I mean, sugar is a comfort food. Also that cortisol dysregulation. So those are, I know that's quite a bit, but just focusing on the foundational sleep, stress, exercise, hydration, balancing blood sugar, really understanding and listening to your body. Absolutely. It's all great advice. And it's something that everybody can implement. But again, right. we get caught up in the moment, we get stressed out, our mind isn't clear, and then you overindulge or you binge something that you shouldn't. So I mean, these are all yeah. great principles, no matter what you're dealing with. I love it. I think one thing too, is I'm also giving yourself grace. Because that will happen. That will happen. And, and it's so hard. And I've been there personally. I see it with my patients all the time. You beat yourself up for making it. And then it's this downward spiral of, oh, I've already eaten a cookie. Let me eat five. You give yourself grace. 
you eat something good, you put it away, you throw it out, whatever, and get back on the bandwagon. So that's a huge one because that guilt cycle is really big with eating. Absolutely. is That that mental emotional component is so huge, no matter what you're dealing with when it comes to health. Absolutely. Well, that's great. Well, let's talk about another uh, hot topic out there that I think yes. a lot of people are confused about. Uh, what do our listeners need to know about gluten? Okay. <laughs> so, so gluten in general, to take like five steps back, is just a protein commonly found in wheat, barley, and rye products. It's added to products to give a fluffy texture, to make dough sticky, also as to, to kind of as a filler in common things as well. Gluten contains two peptides, gliadin and glutenins. And in the literature, gliadin in particular can cause and stimulate this immune reaction. And we can kind of get into that link between autoimmune here in a minute. Um, the issue is, so of course, in your bread products, but beyond that, gluten is commonly in sauces, packaged foods. It's also in beauty supplies. Hydrolyzed wheat protein is commonly in shampoos and in medications. So it is everywhere. Is it a bad thing for everyone? We can kind of talk about that. I'm definitely not a believer that everyone needs to be gluten-free by any means. There's some people and some types of patients that I am more strict about that really do need to get it out as much as possible. I don't think it's bad for everyone necessarily, but again, it's very um, individualized and personalized. Absolutely. So can you tell us, I agree hundred percent. Can you tell us a little bit more about who the people are that may need to be a little bit more strict or at least do a trial of eliminating it? Absolutely. So obviously, and we can get into this in a little, or I can get into it now, whatever you prefer. Those people that have been diagnosed with celiac disease. So an autoimmune process damage to your gut villi when you ingest gluten, those patients with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or even a wheat allergy. So those are a bunch of different reactions. Um, also, on the other hand, my view and what I've seen clinically is those patients with autoimmune disease. It's my view that that really needs to be out forever. There's a lot of literature. So, so what happened to, to go into that just a little bit is there's something called molecular mimicry that happens with autoimmune disease. So if when someone eats gluten that has an autoimmune disease, that gluten molecule in and of itself can, you know, come down, get past, especially if we have this leaky gut, which we can go into, can get past kind of that gut barrier get into the bloodstream where it's not supposed to be. And what happens is your immune system says, hey, this isn't supposed to be here. Let me start attacking it as foreign, which is normal, which is a good thing. That's what our immune system's for. But what can happen is gluten in and of itself can look very similar to structures in our body, specifically our thyroid. So our body's attacking the gluten and it can get confused, loses the ability to distinguish self versus non-self and start attacking our thyroid gland. So there's a lot of literature on the fact that patients, especially with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, autoimmune thyroid disease, being 100% gluten-free gets your antibodies down. Now, from a conventional standpoint, antibodies aren't even checked sometimes. So I have a ton of patients come in, they have hypothyroidism, they're on Synthroid. You know, I ask them if, if they know if it's Hashimoto's, they have no idea. Because from a conventional standpoint, it won't really change what that physician's going to prescribe to you. They're going to put you on thyroid meds. But from our perspective, from a functional medicine perspective, you know, we're going to, if, it, if it's autoimmune derived, 
We're going to look at the gut, fix the gut. We're going to lower toxins. We're going to get gluten out. Maybe dairy is a close second. We're going to work to get those antibodies down as we can, because what's known is when you have one autoimmune disease, you're more likely to get another and another. So we not only want to get the patient feeling better, but we want to prevent further autoimmunity from developing. So absolutely. Yeah. It always gets back to that question of why. And that was a great yep. explanation. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and, you know, and we see it every day and, and, and that's just, I love working with Hashimoto's patients and just s- seeing that progression, taking their antibodies from 900 down to 40. Yeah. So possible. And, but people again are, are either told that it's not possible or they don't mm-hmm. even explore that. But if your antibodies are improving, that is a good indication that your immune system is functioning better. And if you want to prevent those other secondary or tertiary diseases from showing up, that's exactly what we need to do. Well, that's absolutely. So again, people do go gluten-free. A lot of people yep. out there have heard this. They decide to go gluten-free and they think just because they're eating gluten-free that it's um, really healthy food. So can you talk a little <laughs> bit about that? Is all Are all gluten-free products healthy? Yeah, so definitely not. <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is you go to the store, you go to the packaged food section, you get something gluten-free. It could still be laden with sugar, could still be laden with dairy, whatever it is. So no, you know, I would always suggest drop the outer aisles, your naturally gluten free foods are going to be like your healthy, high quality meats and your vegetables and your fruits. But the packaged foods now every once in a while to have a treat. I love simple meals. I love their stuff. I love siete chips, you know, and I have those every now and again, but that's not my whole diet. So that is not a healthy diet either. Just getting away from packaged foods in general or keeping it limited is definitely key. Absolutely. And so what are some great substitutes? So if people do like to cook or to bake, are there some alternatives out there that would be a a good second when they're trying to avoid gluten? I found personally that it depends on your preference because different alternatives will have different mouthfeel, different texture. They'll be better for one thing versus another. But definitely, of course, your nut flour, like your almond flour. There's coconut flour, cassava, tiger nut, and then you have like sorghum, amaranth, arrowroot, etc. So my suggestion is keep an open mind and try different kinds and decide personally what you like the best as far as texture, flavor, everything like that. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, and the food tastes good. I remember back in the day, what was it? I mean, five plus years ago, gluten-free was pretty nasty stuff. Oh, I mean, yeah. it, was, it was rough. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's still around. There's still some of that around, but there have been some really incredible breakthroughs with some of these alternative flowers or products that just, they taste really good. And it's so cool mm-hmm. to see that out there. But like you said, I love what you mentioned. I just want to reiterate that keeping you're shopping around the outer perimeter. I mean, that that's key. You're not going to get yourself into much trouble if you, if you just stick with that, that motto, everything in the middle, man, it, it, it can catch up with you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And even now, you know, spiralizing zucchini or sweet potato noodles, you can do rice cauliflower. There's a lot of alternatives instead of doing all of the even non-gluten grains, And I think some of that in some quantity is perfectly fine if you tolerate it. Sticking to the outer aisles is really big. Eating whole world food is just kind of reiterating that over and over. And then like, yes, definitely for the gluten-free alternatives, I always tell patients have an open mind and try different ones <laughs> because you might try one and it's, and it's awful. And I've done that many of times and other times you're like, this is actually really good. So you have to just keep an open mind on that. 
Absolutely. So. Well, so how, if someone's thinking, Hey, maybe gluten could be a problem for me, or maybe I have autoimmune disease, whether that's Hashimoto's or Graves or lupus or whatever the, the name is. And I want to give this a try or figure this out. What's the best way to do that? Are there, can you talk about a couple of options that might help people figure out if gluten's an issue? Yeah. So definitely I, I, I would suggest if anyone has an autoimmune disease to start eliminating it again, I am, I'm very much of the mindset of balance long-term with patients, but I am more strict with my autoimmune patients and they will all tell you that, but even just people with, let's say skin rashes, eczema, acne, of course, GI symptoms, bloating, constipation, abdominal pain, cramping, hormone imbalance, like does not hurt to try. Now, the what you can do, and, and it depends on how much of an elimination diet you want to do, but if you're just going to go gluten-free, great. Definitely at a minimum needs to be four weeks because that IgG half-life is about 21 to 23 days long. But some people I notice it actually needs to be at least three months of elimination to really see a difference. So four weeks to three months, eliminate gluten completely as much as possible, depending on the person and what's going on with them and symptoms, you can try and reintroduce and see how you feel, but it doesn't hurt. And luckily now, kind of like you were saying, there's so many alternatives. I personally do not feel hindered whatsoever. I still go out to eat. I, I still go to dinner parties with friends and I can always find something. It's just learning what you can have, what you can't have, what you should choose and just listening to your body. Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of it is, is getting over the awkwardness too, when you go out. Cause I think that's so oh, yeah. people need to go out, but don't be scared to tell your waiter, Hey, I'm gluten-free. And they may be like, roll their eyes or they may be like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what gluten is. And that's where you just have to educate them. Um, because your health is, is the priority. And that is uh, more important than anything. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And you have to realize when you're glad to eat, like you're paying for the meal too. So, you know, don't feel bad. And luckily now, depending on where you live, I know smaller towns might not be as gluten-friendly yet, but a lot of times you'd be surprised and people like, Oh, no problem. I have a gluten-free menu or we can do this, this, and this. So people, it'll, they'll surprise you, but it is getting over that fear and, and just asking, or even what I do, this is a little hint, hint. I usually don't tell a lot of people I'm gluten free initially. I call the restaurant ahead. I ask what I can order if they have a separate gluten-free menu. And then I kind of like do it under the table when I order. If it's like a big party and I make it no big deal, but you just call ahead and prepare ahead. And there you go. That's great. Oh, that's great. Yep. Now, what what about, you know, there's a lot, everybody and their brother these days is selling a food sensitivity test. And so if somebody orders a a test online or they have a, a food sensitivity test done at their doctor's office and it comes back negative for gluten. Does that mean that they're good to go? They can eat it? Depends. We have to remember that we have many different immune pathways in our body. Okay. So it depends what is the food sensitivity test? What are they testing? Are they just testing IgG? They might be missing, you know, different subsets of our immune system. I always tell people your best tail is your body. Okay. So, you know, and I do do some food sensitivity tests. So especially in patients that really need to see black or white, oh my goodness, I need to be off of this or people who just want to know. But if it's negative, I always tell them this doesn't completely rule it out by any means. And I'm usually looking at least two different markers. So body's the best tale of how you're doing. So it never hurts and it's free to do an elimination diet, add it back in and see how you feel. Now, remembering when you're doing an elimination diet, these food sensitivities 
are not instant. They're not an allergy and instant immune response, inflammatory response. These food sensitivities are like a delayed immune reaction, meaning they can manifest in the body as some kind of inflammatory symptom, whatever it is, headache, migraine, GI symptoms, skin issues, whatever it is from four to 72 hours after you eat it. So it's really hard for people to know when you're eating something day to day. So I'll have people, you know, eat dairy or gluten or whatever egg, if they're sensitive all the time and be like, well, I never really noticed a food reaction, but I'm having all these symptoms. Well, how would you know, unless you eliminate it and you bring one food back in one at a time every three to four days so that you see if you're having that delayed response. So that's really important. I have a lot of patients that have done whole 30 and then like when day 30 comes up, everything just comes back in and no one knows what's going on or what, what's the symptoms they're having. So if you're going to go and, you know, do an elimination diet, really try and be vigilant about reintroducing one by one, listening to your body, seeing if you're having a flare from your, from your baseline, whatever it is and going from there. So I'm not opposed to food sensitivity tests. I honestly don't run them that often unless someone really wants one. I do think there's value, but you also have to kind of take it with a grain of salt and you, you need to look deeper and look at the whole picture. Absolutely. That's great advice. And uh, yeah, it breaks my heart when people, they, they come in after doing a really strict diet and rocking it and then yep. they just indulge at the end of it and they don't know anything about their food reactions. And it's like, I know it's so hard. <laughs> it is so hard. And that's where those cravings kick in a little bit leads to more. But yeah, let's yeah. talk a little bit, change gears and talk a little yeah. about another uh, controversial topic, dairy, because I know a lot yeah. of people have questions about that as well. First, what I would like to ask you, though, is what are some of the benefits of dairy? Even with gluten, yeah. you know, we know there are, you know, a lot of the foods that have gluten have fiber and a variety mm-hmm. of other nutrients, sometimes some of them fortified. But what about dairy? What are some of the benefits of dairy? So obviously, bone health, calcium, vitamin D potassium. So of course, strengthening your bones, getting that good calcium source in would be and also just protein in general, good amounts of good protein. So muscle bone, everything like that as far as dairy goes. Absolutely. And so what are some of the problems with dairy? (laughs) Yeah, so in my opinion, dairy can be a close second to gluten as far as an inflammatory food naturally inflammatory doesn't mean it's inflammatory to everyone but but people commonly react to it there's there's a few different reasons why they react and we can talk about that here in a minute as far as like the casein versus the lactose versus a dairy allergy whatever it is but but common to have digestive upset with dairy even people who i know some some friends who don't even really have haven't really gotten into it. They never go to the doctor, very healthy, but they're like, oh man, every time I eat dairy, it does not settle well with me. So definitely digestive symptoms. So, you know, you're bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal cramping, but also I commonly see it associated with acne, congestion, definitely eczema, et cetera. So can be inflammatory to some people. Awesome. So is it bad for everybody though? Is it kind of like the same thing or or do some people do fine in your opinion from what you see? Yeah. So, well, we have to remember like majority of patients that are seeing me have some, something going on (laughs) sometime, most of the time. So, but no, I wouldn't say it's bad for everyone. I, and we can talk about this here in a minute. The quality is huge. 
So what kind of then, you know, it's kind of what is causing the issue with some people. So we know, I think it's like 65 to 70% of people are lactose intolerant now. So that's one reason people don't tolerate dairy. Dairy contains a milk protein called lactose. We just don't digest it well. And that within 30 minutes to two hours can cause all that GI distress. Now, on the other hand, the other issue with dairy can be casein. And so in dairy, there's two proteins, casein and whey. Casein's just a milk protein. To get really nerdy, there's two types of casein. There's A1 beta casein and A2 casein. So if you ever go to the health food store and you see pure A2 milk. So this kind of gets into to what might be optimal if people do choose to eat dairy. So A1 casein is from your traditional black or white cow. And in the literature, there's tons of studies on how it is naturally inflammatory to the GI tract, causes GI symptoms. Now, A2 casein is going to be from your brown or Jersey cow, sheep and goats, shown to be way less inflammatory, less likely to cause GI symptoms, and actually for some people may be beneficial. So that is huge. So really for the dairy, I mean, I do think that some people need to be off of it. Some people don't just tolerate it in general. I'm one of those. I've tried to bring back in like goat and sheep and ghee. My body does not like it. So it's very individualized again. But I think that there's certain types of dairy that people can bring back in and see if they tolerate it. I think it can be beneficial. That's great. No, and I think that's really empowering for people who may have a problem with dairy is to know that there's different components that are an issue for different people. So, and we see it sometimes they can tolerate goat or sheep cheese or dairy. They can tolerate maybe raw milk, but not pasteurized milk or A2 versus the conventional or lactose-free cheeses. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of variability there, but you do find those people who just don't tolerate anything. And yeah. that's where you have to, to listen to your body. Absolutely. Uh, but what, what, Absolutely. So if you do have in a dairy issue, does that mean that, uh, you know, you can't enjoy things anymore that you used to with dairy? Are there alternatives that may be a good option oh. for people to explore? Absolutely. So, so for me personally, and, and I have patients that are like this, that you go through an elimination, you reintroduce and depending on how you feel and your symptoms, like some things are just not worth it for you to to bring back in. And now with dairy, there's so many alternatives. I mean, you have your almond milks and your cashew milks and your flax milks. Beyond that, they have cashew ice cream and avocado ice cream. Now those still have sugar in them, but I do indulge in those every now and again, and they're great. So now, and then as far as cheeses, like they do cashew cheese, there's tons of alternatives now, which I feel like are great alternatives. Siete, cashew, have you dip? <laughs> Amazing. I mean, I'll, I'll bring that to something and people have no idea that it's dairy free. So there are a ton of alternatives out there now, which is really great. Again, with reiterating, you just need to be open and trying different things and then see what you like and what you don't like. I will say with the cheese alternatives, read the label. There's a lot of cheese alternatives that have a lot of junk in them. So clean, real, whole ingredients. If you don't know what's on the label, put it back. The less ingredients, the better. So those are my recommendations for absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely. I remember I was in a health food store not too long ago and I saw camel milk. I'm like, what? The yep. Heck? They're even getting from camels now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep, I've heard of camel milk. I actually, and I, I need to delve into the literature on this one, but I think it was either camel or donkey milk decreasing some antibodies. 
Oh, wow. I, I know camel milk. Yeah. I heard that it's good for diabetics. It's something to do with insulin in there, but uh-huh. there's, there's, I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? It's, it's, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. Awesome. It's awesome. Lots of alternatives, which is good. Well, great. Well, so on the, the note of some of those inflammatory foods, again, mm-hmm. I think that's such great advice. People can work on cutting out gluten at least start trying to cut out dairy, at least temporarily to see if they feel any better. What are some right. other common foods that might be problematic for people that they have just no idea about? Absolutely. So gluten and dairy are kind of like the biggest heavy hitters. I do find some, a lot of people might have issues with eggs, even more so the egg white versus the yolk. So the white has a component called lysosome in it, which can be more inflammatory. Again, not everyone reacts to them. Eggs are really good foods, but depending on the person. So eggs, you know, soy, peanuts, uh, nightshade, family of vegetables, which I find at least with rheumatoid arthritis can be a big trigger for joint pain. So that's going to be like your eggplant and your tomatoes and white potatoes and even Golgi berries, that kind of. And then sometimes for some people, especially with GI issues, like other grains, even non-gluten grains, nuts and seeds and uh, legumes. So those foods that have some of the lectins in them, harder to digest and break down. You know, I always recommend if people are doing legumes or nuts and seeds, let's soak them overnight, kind of break up the hard outer shell um, of that and kind of decrease some of those anti-nutrients and then eat corn and shellfish can be big ones too. And, and the fact of the matter is, obviously, this sounds like a very extensive list. My, my notion and my view of diet is, is I don't want people to be so limited long term. I don't. Because I find, and I know you find this too, is when people are eating the same foods every day, they're going to be more likely to acquire sensitivity or lose tolerance to them. So it is about variety. And yes, people might do it's good. And if you want to do a hardcore elimination for 30 to 60 to 90 days, great, but let's try to get foods back in as we can. Now, some foods that are just harder to break down, or if they maybe keep a more limited long term, like your corn or your peanuts, soy, I don't love those foods. But as much as we can get back in the diet that you can tolerate the better. So we get good variety, we get different nutrients as your body tolerates them. That's great. And that's, that's, I was going to ask you about that. So if someone does say they're, they have a problem with gluten or they have a problem with dairy, or maybe they have rheumatoid arthritis and nightshades are an issue and they know that it's going to be a long-term removal, what are some considerations that they need to think about if they have to remove a food long-term? What are some things that they should be trying to figure out or, or do you mind just talking a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely depending on what the food is. So realizing, okay, what makes up that food? What are the nutrients and vitamins and and minerals or protein or fiber in that food and assessing your diet and making sure you're incorporating foods that will help to kind of mitigate that loss. So that's kind of the biggest thing as far as that goes. So with the dairy, making sure we're getting a lot of like other calcium sources, dark leafy greens, oranges, nuts and seeds, things like that for bone health. And then assessing like vitamin D status and K. So really depending on what you're eliminating, just making sure we're making up those potential nutrient deficiencies. Absolutely. I remember uh, several years ago, there was that study that came out. I don't know if you remember it on, on, on gluten and celiac mm-hmm. disease as potentially having a higher risk for cardiovascular disease when they're gluten-free essentially, mm-hmm. but the study had some flaws to it, but it, it is a good point. Even if you are going to remove grains or you're going to remove gluten, thinking about fiber and making sure you're yeah. getting that in as well. And yeah, I love that. I mean, just you're, whenever you remove something, you have to replace it with something else. From value. We see that with eggs, right? With choline and a variety yep. of other things. So 
Absolutely. And the fiber aspect's huge, but the fact of the matter is if you're getting enough non-starchy vegetables, you're getting plenty of fiber. I mean, I'll assess people all the time and they're like, oh, I have a cup of vegetables a day. And I'm like, I want you five plus cups of vegetables a day. I mean, I know that's a lot, but the more we can get in as right, obviously the better, but, and, and that's the thing about a study like that, right? It's like, well, what was their diet consisting of? What was their gluten-free diet? Because just because you're gluten-free doesn't mean it's healthy. So, so that's kind of, that's a definite big one. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. So in your mind, like when you're talking to your patients and uh, you're, you're trying to instruct, you know, them on what they should be eating or how much they should be eating, mm-hmm. what do you tell people their, their plate should look like? We've heard a lot of different variations of this throughout the years. What's the current suggestion on the healthy plate? Yeah. <laughs> so I always tell people, obviously it's individualized, but in general, my general recommendation, as far as what I feel like most people would benefit from, you take your plate and about a half to three fourths of that is non-starchy vegetables. Okay. So your, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, your leafy greens, maybe carrots, cucumbers, whatever it is, some kind of non-starchy vegetable. We have a side dish of protein. Okay. So in America, it's backwards. We have like our main course is protein and this big old steak. We have a teeny little cup of vegetables. So most of your plate vegetables, a palm size of meat, high quality meat, especially like your fattier meats. We know fat stores toxins. So good quality meats, you know, plus or minus some kind of starchy vegetables or starch or fruit, and then make sure we get some kind of good healthy fat in there. So olive oil, avocado, that kind of thing. So really filling up on those vegetables, having some good, um, high quality key meat, healthy fat. And then if you want some fruit, or we're going to do some starchy vegetables or starches, that's kind of the biggest thing. And then you're getting your fiber, you're getting your good protein, we're getting our healthy fats, we're getting some starch or fruit if you prefer. That's great. I love it. Perfect. Yep. Well, what, tell me a little bit, one of the arguments that we hear a lot is eating healthy is too expensive. It, <laughs> yeah. It costs a lot of money to eat healthy. I can go to McDonald's and, you know, off the dollar menu and get a ton of food for five bucks. So how do you defend that for people who really you know, are, are eating a standard American diet and are really wanting to change, but are not quite sure where to start? How, how do you defend that argument? Yeah. So eating healthy does not have to be expensive. Now, if you're buying all these prepackaged foods, absolutely. If you're buying all organic packaged food, yes. But when we're shopping the outer aisles, we're buying real food. It doesn't have to be expensive. Personally, like I um, always do coupons. So like Sprouts or like wherever natural food store or even now Costco, Sam's, all food, just mainstream market has great organic produce options. So looking on the buying in season, huge looking for sales, huge. Also, it's not bad if buying frozen vegetables, obviously fresh. I like best frozen's a second. Those are, you can buy them in bulk, pretty cheap, dirty dozen, clean 15, huge. So we don't need to, I mean, obviously if you can buy everything organic, great. Don't have to, I have that list on my phone, seeing the clean 15 foods that I can buy conventional and don't have to worry about like pesticide residue on. Yeah. Will you, you talk know, about I'm, that Taylor real quick? What about oh, yeah. 15 and dirty dozen? Okay, so Clean 15 Dirty Dozen is a list every year that the Environmental Working puts out. 
showing what are the clean 15. So foods that you can buy conventional and wash and get like pesticide residue off. And the dirty dozen, no matter like how much you wash and you scrub, can't get the pesticides off. So of course, as far as pesticides, known toxins, endocrine disruptors kind of contribute to our overall toxic burden, can be contributed to leaky gut and gut issues, etc. So that's huge. EWG, I really like them. I think it's a great resource. I use them for beauty products too, their Skin Deep app. But that being said, I always tell patients, at least, at least at a minimum, the dirty dozen, don't buy them, don't buy them conventional. Like either don't buy them or buy them organic. So choosing those high quality, you don't have to buy everything organic, but if we can at least try and not buy some of those dirty dozen foods conventional. And then as far as meats, kind of like what I had mentioned before, ideally, if we could invest in high quality meat, it can be sometimes way more cost effective to buy half a cow and store meat in your freezer rather than buying meat every week. I mean, that's a really great option. And then also investing in the fattier meats at least is like grass fed grass finished organic because fat stores toxins. So if at a minimum, if you're if you can't buy organic, buy leaner, less fat. And then if we can invest in some of those high quality fattier meats, huge. So it doesn't have to be expensive. And honestly, too, you always hear this, it's like invest in your health now so you don't have to invest in your health later. True. So yeah. that can be a big one as far as like, yes, you might be feeling okay now and and eating fast food, but what does that look like later on? So at a minimum, if, if we can be getting in more vegetables, getting in more healthy fats, you know, buying in bulk, buying on sale, when things go on sale, I stock up. Right. So you know, it doesn't have to be expensive. You do have to put a little more work into it and do your research, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to break the bank. Yeah. And, and that's the thing and shop local, look at, you look at mm-hmm. like, we're very blessed here. We've got a lot of local options with farmers markets and food farm stands and local farmers. And a lot of times people have that. And it, it, it's usually more cost effective to do that as well. And ask them, I was just talking to a patient today. It was like, you know, just because they're not organic label, it doesn't mean they're not doing everything. Absolutely. So ask them how they're oh. growing their, their uh, animals, ask them how they're growing their mm-hmm. food. Because a lot of times you'll be surprised because some people just don't want to go through that process of getting certified because it's expensive. It's expensive. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. Yeah. Local seasonally eat with the seasons. I mean, you're going to save yourself tons of money and that support local, support your local farmers. Absolutely. And if you think Mm -hmm. eating clean is expensive, you know, put a price on a triple bypass or a dialysis, or even, you know, with autoimmunity, I know a lot of our patients are familiar with the cost of some of these medications. It's insane. So Mm -hmm. invest in your health now so you can reap the benefits later. Absolutely. uh, Well, this is awesome, Taylor. You've been such a wealth of knowledge and I just truly do appreciate it. Can you tell us a life story or take us through uh, a patient you've worked with who has maybe maybe made some changes to their diet, who have seen the benefit and what that looks Mm -hmm. like? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I personally talk with every patient about diet. So I have many of these stories and it just always amazes me that before I even do any kind of protocols, gut healing protocols, nutrient protocols, whatever it is, we make like two changes to their diet and they come back and they feel better, which always is huge. I didn't do anything yet. I just you know told you to eliminate this. So, but I do have a patient that comes to mind as far as she came to me a couple of years ago and was just having really bad migraines. She had um, 
oh gosh, at least weekly debilitating migraines. I mean, it completely affected her life. And so of course, kind of did a full functional medicine workup, but like biggest thing was an elimination diet. And so we did an elimination diet literally after eliminating and for her big triggers, biggest trigger is gluten, eliminated gluten and like migraines, like gone completely, you know, and we did some other things like we treated her gut, repleted her nutrients, things like that. And she has since tried to add gluten back in. And every time she reacts to it, so she's like, it is out forever (laughs) because the migraines are not worth it. So now not everyone is that simple. And I always tell people diet is such an important part of the puzzle. It is huge. It is huge. But also don't lose hope because a lot of times people will come in to me and they've already done a big elimination diet and they're not getting better. And then it just means we have to deep dive further. And diet is still important and we still need to consider that and have a good healthy diet and decrease inflammation. Every time we eat, it, it could be decreasing inflammation and being beneficial. It could be promoting inflammation. But for those people that have done all the dietary interventions and and are frustrated and are confused. Don't lose hope. Try and find a functional medicine provider who will dig deeper and be in your court and just keep doing what you're doing. Keep up the good work, but know that it's a very important part. And then sometimes just in and of itself, changing diet changes everything. And sometimes we need to dive a little further. Absolutely. And we see that a lot with patients who have been everywhere and done everything, right? Every, all the practitioners want to jump to the sexy topics. You want to treat mold. You want to treat Lyme disease. You want to whatever mast cell activations and all this, yep. stuff. but and you look at what they are doing or what they're, how they're treating it. And, and people are forgetting the foundational elements. Yeah, so you're forgetting absolutely. the stress in the nutrition and the gut health and the, and all the environment, all of this stuff. And and a lot of times when you take someone through those foundational elements, it's just so amazing how much progress they can make. And it's so rewarding to see that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't forget the foundations. Yeah. And it can be seem really fancy to go do all these big protocols. And some people need that. There's a time and a place. Absolutely. But just doing and focusing on the foundations of clean diet, you know, clean eating, stress reduction. Life is stressful where no one is not going to have some kind of stress, but like learning how to cope with it, taking care of yourself, being out in nature, sleeping appropriately, just all those foundational things have such a big impact. And so I can't reiterate them enough. Um, and those things make a huge difference. So absolutely. And that's why your patients do so well. And I try. Uh, you're I awesome. try. You're they're awesome. great. They're, they're the ones who are doing it's it all true, though. Like right? I just Isn't recommend awesome? stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're like, thank you. And I'm like, you know, you're, you're doing the hard work. So exactly. keep up the good work. So they're awesome. They, they sure are. Well, can you, I like to leave the conversation with a good health tip that our listeners can implement. Do you have a, a really solid health tip? Regarding nutrition, our listeners may be able to put into action tomorrow to help them succeed when it comes to improving their health. So the first one, I have a lot of health tips, but the first one that comes to mind, which I think is big, and this just came to my head, make sure you're drinking water first thing when you wake up. So often we reach for coffee or something else. First thing when when you wake up, like we have been sleeping overnight, we're dehydrated, really investing in good high quality water. So I have a good water full, I have a Berkey water filtration system, you know, clean water, but I have like a big old mason jar. I drink, I sometimes put lemon in it first thing when I wake up to start the day. So we're starting ourselves off for success. It's not a super fancy recommendation, but it, it can be huge because so often 
we go for the coffee pot in the morning. So go for water, drink water throughout the day, stay hydrated. It'll help you make good choices and probably be, that was the first thing that came to mind. That was perfect. No, I love it. (laughs) Well, this has been absolutely fantastic for, so for our listeners who want to find out more about you and where you practice, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? So I have an Instagram. It's Taylor Morgan PAC. You can link it. And then I'm currently working at a practice in Fort Worth, Texas, Taylor Dukes Wellness at Restore and Revive Wellness Center. So either way, I'd love for people to follow. I'm not super big into social media, but I do try and post tips and things like that. I just have to personally disconnect every now and again, which is good for my soul. But I, I would love for people to follow or, and connect and, and hear from people. That was another good health tip for those of you who didn't pick up on that. Disconnect from (laughs) social media once in a while. (laughs) Oh, I have to do. I mean, and that's so, so important. That could be a whole other talk, but disconnecting, that's part of my stress reduction. (laughs) I just have to. Yeah, we all have to. Well, thank you so much. And I I hope to have you on again soon for another topic. This is really going to be helpful for so many people. So I hope so. Stay healthy. And uh, we look forward to having you on again. Absolutely. I had so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I'm Dr. Seth Osgood, the founder of Grassroots Functional Medicine. Don't forget, you can join the Grassroots private Facebook group to connect with fellow health seekers and find practical tips to improve your state of wellness. Just search Grassroots Community on Facebook to join. And if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, and you're looking for a comprehensive program to reclaim your state of wellness with cutting-edge testing, a team of providers to hold you accountable, and a structured plan of action to not only get you well, but to keep you well in the years to come, check out our adaptation programs online at grassrootsfunctionalmedicine.com. Thanks again for listening, and have a blessed day.